I've actually only just spotted that um, the songs are in, not in the order that I thought they were. So this first bit of my sermon isn't going to make sense. I do apologise. The song we're going to sing after the sermon includes this verse. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our striving cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. I asked to sing that song today because I heard it two weeks ago and it got me thinking about peace and what that means. It says, let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. And I don't know about you, but my life isn't very orderly. My life seems to be full of chaos and things being thrown at me. And a lot of the Christians I know are also living in this state of busyness and don't have ordered lives. And if we're supposed to be having tidy lives to confess God, then that doesn't seem to make sense to me. And I don't think it's just me having an odd life because of looking at the Bible. I don't think Paul knew what was being thrown at him. I don't think he had plans that he'd made and was living out the way they were intended to. I mean, he's in prison, as, we, as you said, in prison when he writes this. And Joseph was a great example. He was, he was living with God, but Joseph's life was messy and chaotic, wasn't it? What is peace? I want to look at it today. In, we're going to start, we'll do so by looking at the verse we've just had read to us, Philippians 4. If you follow it in your Bibles, it'll make more sense because I'm going to go through it line by line-ish. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. We know we're supposed to be rejoicing in God. That's partly why we come to church, isn't it? To celebrate him. And when Spurgeon read this verse, he made the great comment, what a gracious God we serve, who makes it delight to be a duty, who commands us to rejoice. Should we not at once be obedient to such a command as this? It's intended that we should be happy. Isn't that a great point? We have an amazing God who makes it our obligation to be joyful. In trying to be joyful, though, there's a few mistakes we can make. The first, beating ourselves up if we're not joyful. You're not going to get in trouble for not being happy all the time. You are allowed to not constantly be in a state of joy. Joy is a gift, and there are going to be things that happen that will bring your joy down. But actually, when we're trying to find joy, we often make the mistake of not knowing what it is that will make us happy. We all have ideas. I think I'll be happy when the sun is shining. I know I'll be more joyful when I'm making just a bit more money. I'll be happy when I'm in a relationship with the right person. I'll be happy when I find my dream job. I'll be happy when the kids have moved out. I'll be happy when I get there, not where I am now. And that limits us. And perhaps another mistake we can make is try really hard to find happiness, to find joy. So if we were trying to make ourselves happy, we might try cutting out bad habits that we know bring us down, cutting out negative friends, uh, reducing the stressful patterns of our living, and try and live better ways, try really hard to just, just make it, to do well, and to find space for happiness. But that doesn't work either. Sometimes we can be chasing happiness so hard we can't actually reach it because it becomes a, a task, a job. I read this great analogy. It's like a person who's drowning. They need to trust the lifeguard who comes to save them. 
the more they struggle to save themselves, the more difficult it is to be saved. Or maybe it's like the patient in the hospital. They wake up from surgery and find tubes in them. The more they fight the tubes and pull at them, the longer it will be before they get better. Instinct says to fight, but in this case, instinct is wrong. We can't really fight to make ourselves joyful. It doesn't work. C.S. Lewis had a solution to this. He says it's because we can't find happiness and peace on our own. There is no such thing outside of God. And actually, in saying all that, I've been deliberately confusing joy and happiness. They're not the same thing, although they're similar. Happiness comes about because of the circumstances. Someone over here prayed for the Commonwealth Games and saying it was great seeing that it made people so happy, so, so joyful to see everyone celebrating in it. Happiness is a celebration in the moment. But joy isn't dependent on the world around us because joy comes from inside. It's reliant only on what's internal, not on our circumstances. Take Paul. He's, he says he's rejoicing, but he's in prison. Is he happy that he's in prison? No, he's not stupid. No one's going to be happy that they're imprisoned, but he is joyful to be there. Throughout the book, Philippians' theme is joy. He talks about it constantly. Rejoice. I say again, rejoice. So we have this amazing God who tells us to rejoice, who tells us that we can have this internal happiness. But that's so much easier to say than do. Even though you've just heard me say joy isn't dependent on your circumstances, you probably don't believe me. I don't know your circumstances, and it's probable possible that people here have things going on in their lives that are too hard, too heavy, too stressful to think that they have room in their lives for joy. The life is too heavy and difficult, too painful to have joy. Which is why Paul goes on to talk about anxieties. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The command, do not be anxious about anything, can seem just as impossible as the command to rejoice when you're struggling. Just don't be anxious. There's a Bobby McFerrin song called Don't Worry, Be Happy. Do people remember it? Don't worry, be happy. It lists problems that could be solved just by not worrying and just choosing to be happy. So, the rent is late. Don't worry, be happy. It used to be on the tape that my parents had in the car. So it would come up on long journeys. And whenever it came on, we would join in by ad-libbing lyrics and mocked it, thinking up things that just made no sense to not worry about. Uh, my head's fallen off. Don't worry, be happy. Yeah. Positive thinking only goes so far. You, there's so many problems that can't be solved just by deciding that they're not problems, deciding not to be anxious. Just be joyful. That doesn't help anyone. Has everyone, anyone ever told you just, just cheer up? It doesn't help, does it? You can't just choose to be happy. So that's not what Paul is doing here when he says this. In fact, the whole Bible acknowledges the darker side of human feelings. It never tells us to deny what's going wrong. It really affirms them sometimes. When you're struggling, 
It can be such a help to turn to the Bible, to turn to the book of Job or the book of Lamentations and read them and read other people who are also really struggling and really in dark places and acknowledge, yes, it's okay that I'm in this place as well. The Bible allows that. Psalms is another great place for this. In church, we tend to only read the happy Psalms, but there's just as many that are written from places of complete despair, where the only light at the end of the tunnel is that God is there too. And it can help so much to read those. Go, ah, okay, I'm in a miserable place, but the Bible knows, God knows, what it's like to be miserable place. So this passage in Philippians isn't trying to dismiss our concerns, but it is trying to help us carry them in the right way. Let's go back to the other passage we read, Matthew 6, 25 to 34. This verse was given to me, actually, at the beginning of my academic year, when I first moved into halls at college and was living away for the first time. I, I moved, I changed college So there was a lot to be worried about. And the night before I left, someone gave me this verse and said it was for me for this year. And so all this year, it's been been on my my door, outside my dorm room, um, so I can go past and be constantly reminded that God, Jesus says, don't worry about the things of tomorrow. For God cares for you more than the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. It's been such a help to me. Whenever things have got stressful and worried, I look at that passage and remember that God is looking after us. He knows our concerns. He knows what we need. And he's there for us. How much more valuable are you than the sparrows? How much more valuable are you than the lilies of the field? And I love that it's Jesus who says this. N.T. Wright says, When Jesus told his followers not to worry about tomorrow, we must assume he led them by example. He wasn't always looking ahead anxiously. No, he seems to have had the skill of living totally in the present, giving attention totally to the present task, celebrating the goodness of God here and now. When I think about Jesus' life, I realise I have it easy. Jesus had the most pressurized life ever. He had this task ahead of him of making sure the entire world heard his message. Every time he went out and spoke to someone, he must have been aware that the other people around him would one day write down his words and record them so that people for thousands of years would be reading them. That's pressure. If I knew people would be reading this sermon 2,000 years from now, I would have spent a lot more time on it. There is... There's so much pressure Jesus has been under. He must have known he had to do the right thing all all the time because if he made a mistake, I mean, what effect would that have had on his message? He must have known that every consequence would be huge of his time. He had the world to save. He had a message to preach. He had to make sure everyone understood what he was saying and what he was trying to get across to them actually did get across. And he had so little time in which to do it and he had to travel and he never knew where he was going to lay his head. He... the pressure he was under and yet he was calm, serene joyful you know all the times he'd go out for meals and things he was living a joyful life and a peaceful life and it comes to its epitome when we look at the last few days of his life in the garden when he is sweating blood with his fear for the execution he knows is ahead of him 
just, just imagine that pressure on if it was you, and you knew you were going to be executed tomorrow, the state you'd be in, I, I'd be a mess. And yet, when the soldiers come for him and chaos breaks out and there's swords being waved around, Jesus is the one who's able to very calmly, very peacefully just stop the conflict and go peacefully with them, calmly, collected, and to stand before his accusers with total composure and tell the Sanhedrin and tell Pilate what he's mean. And the crowd are crying out for his blood and he still stands composed. That is peace. And that is amazing. And in case you think it's just Jesus who gets to have peace like that in the face of conflict, nah, because this is Paul talking as well. Paul is in prison. Paul has had a difficult life, and yet he too has found this peace that comes from God. He knows life at its worst. He's struggled. In a few verses' time, he'll say, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Even at the difficult times of his life, even in the deep struggles, Paul trusts God. He knows he's in God's care. He has hope. First, he hopes in the God who answers prayer. And second, he sees his life in the perspective of its end. He knows that he has life coming to him in the resurrection. He knows the world will be made new when Jesus comes again. He knows God has a plan and he's working it out through the world, through Paul. And so he doesn't need to be anxious because he knows God's got it in hand. And one way or the other, the problem will be solved, whether by answered prayer or whether by the beautiful end that we anticipate. He knows that God has it in control. God has it. He doesn't need to be worried. He doesn't need to bear this himself because he knows God is carrying it. So yeah, whatever you're going through right now might look insurmountable and I don't dismiss it. There are huge difficulties that we face throughout our lives. But Jesus has overcome the world. And just like Paul, you are enabled through the Spirit to face your difficulties with the same peace that Jesus had. The second part of that verse was about prayer. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul tells us this is the way that we achieve peace and joy. Not by forcing ourselves to do it, but by praying, by coming before God, by going back to a relationship with him, a connection to him. But we can be quite reluctant to do that when we're struggling. First of all, the struggles we have might be so time-consuming, we just don't think that there's a chance to sit down and pray about them. I can't pray right now. I'm doing this. Prayer will take too long. (laughs) There's a book title. You're too busy not to pray. You're never too busy not to pray. It can only take a few seconds to just quickly tell God what you're worried about. Walking into the, the meeting that you've been worrying about to quickly go, God, I'm really worried. Please be with me in this. And that's enough, that's prayer. But when you do have time for more, what I've found is that prayer always makes its own time. I've never regretted spending time praying, going, oh, I should have been, I should have been working on it instead. Actually, 
God answers prayer, so make time for it. Find space for it. You won't regret it. Another reason we're reluctant to come to God in prayer is because it's hard to tell God some things. You don't quite know what it is. You can't quite phrase it. You can't really explain your anxiety. Do you remember that verse in Romans 8? When we do not know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit speaks for us. So we don't need to worry about saying it right. God knows what we're saying. The Spirit interprets it for us. He's never going to misunderstand you. Or maybe you're reluctant to come to God because you fear rebuke. The reason you're anxious is because of some mistake you've made, some sin you've done, some problem you've created. It's your fault you're in this problem. And if you go to God for help, you're worried he's going to go, well, it's your problem. What on earth did you do that for? He doesn't do that. Remember that we are forgiven through Jesus. We can come to God of our prayers and he might grieve with us that we've done this. He might be upset like we are that we've made these, these problems, these mistakes, these sins, but you know, he's going to meet those issues. He's going to heal whatever's gone wrong in your life. He loves you like a father and he'll listen. That's another one. Maybe we think God just won't listen. Maybe we've prayed many times about this problem and we think God just isn't listening. He doesn't care. He's not paying attention to you or your concern isn't big enough for him. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That's Jesus speaking with a promise that we will be heard if we speak. Or maybe we think we, he won't care. But the Bible is full of little stories of times that Jesus, had, Jesus and, and God have, have, have cared about people. There was this time Jesus was walking to Nain and he saw a widow and he cared enough to bring her son back for her. There was a time when Hannah was praying in the temple about her, her barrenness and God answered her and gave her a son. God does listen to the little people of the Bible. He listens to our lives, even when our problems seem insignificant to everyone else, but they're big for us because God cares about each one of us, just like he cares for every sparrow, every lily. He cares for each person here and loves and answers. Or maybe the reason we're not going to God in prayer is because we want to be in charge. We would rather like to have that problem as our thing. We don't, want it to, we don't want it a problem, but we don't want to relinquish control. I'm not good at sharing. I'm not very good at working on group projects. I rather like to be the one who tells people what to do in a group project. And sometimes I'm like that with prayer as well. If I tell God that that's an issue, then I'll have to give it to him and stop work. I won't stop working, but I'll have to stop worrying about it. And I, the worry is mine. It, it, it's hard to relinquish problems. But haven't we already given our lives to Jesus and put him on the throne of our hearts? Haven't we already said that he can have our all? We should probably give him our problems as well then. It actually doesn't help to keep our worries. It helps to give them to the person who can resolve them, the person who will grant us peace if we do so. And one final reason I thought of that we might not 
go to God with prayer is because we're worried we won't get the right answer. We have to actually be prepared that sometimes God will say, no, no, I'm not going to fix that for you. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to stop that conflict. No, I'm not going to bring that person to me. No, I'm not going to lift your illness from you. Because through these things, God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a reason for saying no. And I'm not going to preach an entire sermon. Like You could. The only way to answer this would be to preach an entire sermon on why God says no sometimes. You'll have to think through for yourself why sometimes he says no. But one quote I found that is one possibility I just really wanted to share. Uh, J.I. Packer says this. In Britain and America, execution for active Christianity is unlikely to come our way. But it's certain that someone who reads this will be called upon one day to glorify God by dying of cancer. What does that thought do to us? Does it strike a chill into our hearts? Cancer is a beast. But it is clear that Paul could have faced cancer and rejoiced. And if we master the secret of his joy, so may we. God will stand with us, though, in our difficulties, no matter what those difficulties are. When we bring them to him in prayer, he says he answers. He says he walks with us, whether the answer is yes or no. He will grant us peace that gives us strength to stand when the waves are battering all around us. You know, I almost did the wrong children's slot for this morning. I thought it would be really cool if I did the calming of the storm. Uh, Jesus is asked to do something and he stops the waves from thrashing. And then I almost made a mistake with this other one as well. I almost entirely took the books away. Sometimes God doesn't often answer prayer by taking away our problems. More often, he lifts the load so that we can bear it, carries it for us, holds us up, supports us so that we can carry on with this. Because it's in that way that we bring glory to God. The peace of God transcends understanding. When someone has this peace, you won't be able to understand it. When you have this peace, you might not know how it is that you are facing these problems so calmly. How can Jesus be so calm when so much is battering at him? How can Paul be so composed and so joyful in prison? How can they, suffering from cancer, still be so calm, so full of love for God, so able to rejoice? It's because the peace of God has come on them like a gift and God has carried their burdens for them. Peace is guarding their hearts and minds. The song I started with, the song we're about to sing, take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. When granted God's peace, we'll be able to rest our burdens on him. Our strains and stresses will lift and the way in which we live our lives will baffle understanding as we face the challenges with such valour and calm, trusting God in the battle, that all will look and see the beauty of God's peace in our lives.